So today I want to talk about homeostasis. Homeostasis is very important and it's a central topic that we'll return to time and time again as we go through each different body system. Homeostasis is basically the ability of an organism to maintain a consistent internal environment in response to changing internal or external conditions. And we can see this in a couple of different ways, a couple of different examples. A really great example is gonna be body temperature. And normally you have sort of a set point in your body, right? Normal body temperature is around 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit. So if you're running around outside and it's warm, or you're just exerting a lot of energy and your body gets higher than 98.6, well, that could be a problem. If it, if it kept getting higher and higher and higher, there might be a problem. Our enzymes and proteins wouldn't function properly. So homeostasis is how we keep our internal conditions stable. In this case, we want to bring our body temperature back down to 98.6. And so in order to do that, a couple of things might happen. Uh, the blood vessels inside your dermis might dilate and that would let more of that warm blood closer to the surface of our skin so that heat can escape and our sweat glands are then going to um, start secreting that sweat or secretions and our sweat which is wet is going to go to the surface of our skin and evaporate and that's going to draw more heat away so that's one example of homeostasis all of our homeostatic control systems are going to have three main um, components. So first we have the receptor. The receptor is going to be the portion of our homeostatic control system that detects the changes in a variable. And that change in the variable um, in the example we just used is our body temperature rising. So that would be the stimulus. The stimulus, like the change in temperature that's sensed by the skin, is going to be detected by the receptor which is the first part of our homeostatic control system. So number one, the receptor is going to detect that stimulus. This receptor is then going to send that information to the control center, or in many of our homeostatic control mechanisms, the receptor and control center might be the same thing. But either way, the receptor is then going to send that information to the control center. The control center interprets input from the receptor and then is going to decide what to do about it, right? So in this case, our receptor, like our um, skin thermoreceptors in our skin are going to detect the fact that we're hot, right? So they, they're, they're going to sense the stimulus that increased body temperature. The receptor will then send that information up into our hypothalamus, which is the control center. And this hypothalamus is going to be um, receives that stimuli, receives the information from the receptor and says, hey, the body is too hot. Now what are we going to do about it? Well, in this case, in order to bring us back to our normal body temperature, our hypothalamus is going to tell our effectors that we need to lower our body temperature. And the effector is the structure that brings about changes to alter the stimulus. And the effector can be, is generally something that is either a muscle, so a smooth muscle or a skeletal muscle, or it may be a gland, something within our body that's going to cause the change. And it brings about the changes um, to alter that stimulus. 
So in the example that we talked about before, the effectors would be the smooth muscle within the dermal blood vessels in order to dilate. That would relax in order to dilate the blood vessels to let more blood come towards the surface, as well as those myoepithelial cells or the smooth muscle within those epithelial cells in your sweat gland, which is gonna cause the sweat glands to secrete that sweat. Now, how does the control center talk to the effector? Now, that's a good question. Our control center can, is generally either part of the nervous system or the endocrine system. If our control center is part of the nervous system, so the brain, um, the brainstem is a really common place that will have our control centers, then it is usually connected to the effectors via nerves. And so our nerve impulses can run right down those nerves from the control center, and then that will directly stimulate the effector. This is really pretty fast. It's a quick response because most of our nervous system can send its signals very quickly. Now, if our control center is part of the endocrine system, the response is a little bit slower because the endocrine system is not directly connected to the effector via a nerve. Usually, the endocrine system is going to use a hormone in order to communicate with the effector. And hormones are basically just little chemicals or chemical messengers. So the endocrine gland will secrete that hormone into the blood. The hormone will then travel throughout the bloodstream and it's going to have to find the correct receptor and that's gonna be at the effector. When that hormone gets to the effector, then the effector is stimulated and it should bring about changes that alter that stimulus. The endocrine system, as you can see, is a little bit slower, but oftentimes the response is more sustained, so it will last a little bit longer. So as a review, the components of the homeostatic control system. First, we have the stimulus. It's not technically a component of the control system, but it's what sort of causes everything to happen. It's the change in the variable that is regulated. Next, we have the receptor. The receptor is the structure that detects the stimulus. And sometimes this is the same as the control center, and sometimes it's separate. If they're separate, the receptor sends information to the control center. The control center then integrates that input and initiates a change through the effector. So as we said before, the control center can either be part of the nervous system or part of the endocrine system. If it's part of the nervous system, it's going to use nerves. It's going to send its message from the control center to the effector via nerves. If it's part of the endocrine system, the control center will use a hormone messenger, a hormone which is a chemical messenger, to send a signal to the effector. That effector, finally, is the structure, usually a muscle or a gland, that brings about the change in the stimulus. And that will cause the homeostasis to be restored. All right, so today we're going to go ahead and continue on chapter seven. As you can see, we have got, um, we're supposed to finish up with chapter seven today. We are probably going to end up having to finish up on Monday. We'll get through as much as we can today and finish up on Monday. And we're not gonna spend the whole time talking about axial and appendicular skeleton in lecture because we've talked most about that in lab. So most of chapter eight, I'll do like a quick review, like five, 10 minutes. And the rest of that we've gone over in lab and just make sure you know all of the, um, all the parts of the bones for that lab practical. So 
Monday's lab, you guys have your last, your appendicular skeleton lab next Monday. Wednesday's lab, you just had your appendicular skeleton lab. So then next week, Wednesday, you guys will have the lab practical. And then Monday, your lab practical won't be next Monday. It'll be the Monday after. So it, let me know if you have come to the lab practical. <laughs> if you can't, for whatever reason, there's like an accident or something, let me know. Um, Monday, you guys are doing it last, so it's going to be harder for me to give it to you guys if you miss it, so try to come. But uh, just let me know if you have an issue, and if you do have an issue, it has to be like emergency or some sort of documentation. So try to come to the lab practical. I'm going to be setting lots of stuff up. It's going to be hard for you guys to make up, so be there. So as you guys can see, we have fall break coming up on Friday, so don't come to class on Friday, but I will see you guys on Monday. The attendance is going around. It seems like some people started fall break early. <laughs> there are not quite as many of you guys here as normal. So if for our group stations over here, you guys can like work together with the um, groups behind you or next to you if your group is empty. So we're gonna start with um, this PTH osteoporosis and calcium homeostasis handout that I just handed out. I gave one per group so you guys can work together. Uh, it is also linked on Blackboard, so if you go to lessons in unit three, which I think is where I just was, um, it should be under unit three activities. It's the bone calcium one. So I'll pull it up here so you guys can follow along. So this is like a mini case study. So the scenario is that your cousin Suzanne is an outside hitter for the University of Kentucky Volleyball and she fell during practice. She was transported to the emergency room because she was in extreme pain and couldn't support her weight. Upon examination, the doctor explains that Suzanne has suffered a hip fracture. Because Suzanne is young, it's important to determine the underlying cause of the fracture and a number of tests have been ordered. So for model one, we're going to look at a bone mineral density test and um, look at T-scores. So you guys can look at this. I'll leave this up here. And then the questions are going to be on the next page. So go through those questions. And then we'll go over that. If you do finish that early, you can move on to model two, the histology of bone tissue. So this should be a little bit of a review of what we talked about yesterday with the hormones involved in bone calcium. So I'll let you guys work with your groups for the next five or seven minutes. And I'll walk around and see if you guys have questions. I'm not going to collect those today. You guys can use them for your for studying. Okay. And you can you can write on them. Okay. And it is also linked online if you want to follow along.
you guys have any questions? Do you guys have any questions? Uh, no, we're just reading for right now. <laughs> Can negative T's and scores be considered normal? Right, so we're just looking, these are just her test results. So all of this is just, this is what the normal range is for the bone mineral density test. These are the, the scores. This is, these are her test results. And then it starts with a question. So this is all just info first. The question, so now discuss can negative T-scores be considered normal? So look at this. And so what is normal bone density? Greater than negative one. So. Does that mean there are negative scores that can be considered normal? Yes. <laughs> so they can be considered normal. And this is just sort of practice looking at the graph. Now we're going to the next question. She received a T-score of negative 3.6 in her bone mineral density test. So what does this score indicate to her doctor? We thought we had to come up with the T-score. No. I was so confused. Nope. You guys are thinking a little bit too in-depth. Just most of these are like intro review exercises, so a lot of the information is right there on the sheet. So make sure you guys look and see what 3.6 is, what negative 3.6 is. Yes, you guys write on it. You can, um, we're gonna start going over the first page and you can move on if you guys are done. 68% of the population is gonna fall in between this. So I feel like normal is anywhere between yeah. 
Need more time? A little bit? Take another minute or so. We're going to start coming back together as a group to talk about this. So for our first question, it asks us to look at this chart right here. This is going to be a graph of sort of the average bone mineral density tests. This person's individual results are analyzed to yield what is called the T-score. The number of standard deviations above or below the mean, which is figure one right here, for a healthy adult of the same age, sex, and ethnicity as the patient. So 68% of the population falls within one standard deviation of the mean. So that means that right here, this is 68%. This is what most people, it's like most normal people are going to have, or people that are healthy have normal bone mineral dense, <laughs> bone mineral density are gonna fall within here. So somewhere between one and negative one. But then we'll have a small percentage of people that have um, extra dense bones that are a little bit higher and a small percentage of people that are a little bit lower. And so table one is gonna explain what this means. So a T-score greater than negative one, so anywhere from here to here is normal. So for our first question, we asked, can we have a T-score, can a negative T-score ever be normal? Yes. What did you guys decide? Yes. yes, right? So a negative T-score can be normal. Can someone give me an example? What is a negative T-score that would be normal? Negative one or negative point five, negative point seven five. So anything that's going to be greater than you know, negative one or greater, that's going to be, well, really, it's greater than negative one. Between negative one and negative two point five, so this is this little area right here, this is going to be early signs of osteoporosis, which is also known as osteopenia. And so that means that there this portion of the population has bones that are a little bit less dense, but it's not quite osteoporosis yet. And then anything less than negative 2.5 here, what is that going to be? 
Osteoporosis. So what was Suzanne's um, T-score? Negative 3.6. So where on this graph would negative 3.6 fall? <laughs> Somewhere over here, right? Like negative 3.6. It's pretty far. And what does that indicate to Suzanne's doctor? That she has osteoporosis. Is that weird? Like if she is um, a college sports player, would you think that she'd have osteoporosis? No, right? So that's kind of odd. She's young. She's pretty active. Most of these things are not going to normally lead to osteoporosis. So that's why they're going to be doing some more tests. So some of the other tests we looked at where they did, they looked at her blood and they looked for levels of parathyroid hormone, calcium, and calcitonin. And so if you guys will remember, we talked about some of these when we talked about our hormones and that regulate blood calcium yesterday. So which of Suzanne's um, blood tests are within the normal range? Calcitonin. So her calcitonin is still within the normal range. What about above the normal range? Calcium and PTH, or parathyroid hormone. So what is her calcium levels? 11.7 milligrams per deciliter. And so if we look at milligrams per deciliter, normally it should be 9 to 10.5. So it doesn't seem like it's very elevated, but remember that we said calcium is very tightly regulated. So even a small elevation is something to be a little bit worried about, right? We don't want to have inappropriate mineralization somewhere. We want to make sure that we have the correct amount of calcium. And then our parathyroid hormone, what's the normal um, amount in picograms per milliliter of parathyroid hormone? 10 to 65 picograms per milliliter. What is Suzanne's? 128. So is that a little bit elevated or very elevated? Very. Extremely. That's very elevated, right? And so we have an elevated parathyroid hormone and an elevated calcium. If we just, I know, basically look at these two levels, um, what do you suppose the relationship between parathyroid hormone levels and calcium levels might be in the blood? If like we have really high parathyroid levels and, it's, and our calcium levels are also high, do you think they're going to be related? Yes. Yeah. yeah, so they're probably related. So if our parathyroid hormone is higher, then our calcium might go higher. And this is very non-scientific, but it's just kind of a very quick correlation that we can look at. So next we'll move on to the model of bone histology. And we'll just do this part as a class if you haven't started it yet. So we can look at these two different cartoons of spongy bone. We have normal spongy bone here, and then we have osteoporotic spongy bone. So we can see the trabeculae of the spongy bone, or these little areas right here. And then we can see that these spaces, or pores, right here are going to be the spaces between the trabeculae. So can someone give me one difference they see between the normal bone and the osteoporotic bone? The pores are larger. In which type of bone? The osteoporotic bone. And then what about the trabeculae? There's, they're thinner, right? The trabeculae are thinner, and there are less of them. So in general, we have reduced bone mass, right? So this is sort of the visual representation of what's happening inside the bone. So what do you guys think if we're looking at osteoporotic bone here? This osteoporotic bone has more pores and less bone tissue. What would be a good definition for osteoporosis based on that and the T-scores? 
We're lowering bone density, right? We have lower bone density, lower bone mass. We have less amount of bone. So what do you guys think? Based on what we've seen before and the fact that Suzanne's bones probably look more like this than this, do we think that she fell and that caused her to break her hip? Or do we think that maybe like her hip broke and that ca caused her to fall? It could be that her hip, it could be either really, um, because we don't know exactly what happened. We didn't see it. So maybe someone, you know, maybe she just like jumped and that caused her hip to break and then she fell. Or maybe like really she did fall because she was trying to, I don't know, catch up a, a ball somewhere and then she fell and maybe that caused her hip to, to break. So it could be either, but in a normal healthy individual that didn't have osteoporosis, would you expect her hip to break causing her to fall? No. So like if she was, didn't have osteoporosis, we would say no, her hip wouldn't break causing her to fall. She would probably fall, like she would have to be pushed really hard in order for her hip to break. So it could be either of those, but because we know that her bones are fragile, it's a possibility that either of those happened. So then this is the last part we're gonna be talking about, hormones and calcium level regulation. This is gonna go back to our lecture on Monday. So Suzanne's blood test indicates a condition called hyperparathyroidism. So what does hyper mean? Above, right, too much. And then parathyroid glands, right, or her parathyroid hormone. So hyperparathyroidism, her parathyroid gland is secreting too much parathyroid hormone. The doctor explains how this condition relates to her broken hip and osteoporosis. So he tells her that calcium is necessary for many functions in the body one being hardening of bone tissues, which also serve as the body's storehouse of that mineral. The primary hormone utilized to regulate levels of calcium circulating in our blood is parathyroid hormone, also called PTH. There's a group of small glands called the parathyroid glands on the backside of the thyroid gland in your throat. And we saw those in our um, illustration on Monday. The parathyroid gland senses the calcium levels and adjusts its secretion rate of parathyroid hormone. The parathyroid hormone indirectly stimulates osteoclasts, the bone pruners or the bone destroyers, the bone absorbers, in order to increase blood calcium. So you guys work on these next questions here and we will come back, take the next five or seven minutes to work on these next questions.
increase your activity. Which specific type of bone cell is affected? So which of the cell types has the receptor for the parathyroid hormone? Which of the cells in bone is going to be affected by the parathyroid hormone? hormones that we're talking about are not going to affect the osteoblast. So they're not affected by these hormones specifically. The parathyroid hormone is only going to affect the osteoclast. If we did have high blood calciums, which we do now, normally the parathyroid would not secrete parathyroid hormone. So it would, and it would secrete, the thyroids would secrete more of that calcitonin. And so we would be mostly regulating the osteoclast. And then as well as we talked about the kidneys and how the kidneys are going to be either absorbing more calcium and like keeping the calcium or um, eliminating calcium depending on the levels. Okay. And they are going to be affected by both that parathyroid hormone and the calcitonin. Okay. And that's what we talked about. Yeah. Yes. Do you guys have questions about this? No, not right now. So you guys got the osteoclast that salt have affected? What about the what effect does the do the osteoclast have on blood calcium? It goes up. Yep, it goes up. It increases it. Bone calcium. So where are we getting the calcium? So we're increasing the calcium in the blood, right? So it has to come from somewhere. Where's the calcium that we're, that is, how is the blood calcium being increased? Where are we getting that calcium from? The hormone. Where do we store calcium in the body? In the bones. In the bones, right? So we're taking the calcium from the bones. We're taking it out of the bones and putting it into the blood. So when we increase calcium in the blood, what's happening to the calcium in the oh, bone? It goes down. It decreases. It goes down. All right, guys. Under what conditions is parathyroid hormone released? What was that? Low blood calcium. All right, so low blood calcium is our stimulus.
And what cell type is affected? That's going to be the E vector. Osteoclasts, right? So osteoclasts are the bone pruners. What happens to the levels of calcium in the blood when osteoclasts, when, when parathyroid hormone acts on osteoclast? It increases. It increases, right? So it just said it right here. The bone pruners, they increase blood calcium. So how do they increase that blood calcium? Where is the calcium coming from? So they increase blood calcium, and so they're taking the calcium from the bones. So what happens to the amount of calcium in the bones? So that's going to decrease the amount of calcium in the bone. Do you guys have questions about that? That's something I want to make sure that you understand where the calcium is coming from. Is that we're taking the calcium from the bone and then releasing it into the blood. So the next part is to make a flow chart and to write out the diagram of um, our homeostatic control mechanism. And we're just going to look at a couple different parts here. So we said the stimulus was low blood calcium. What is the receptor? What organ is going to sense the low blood calcium? The parathyroid gland. And what's the control center? Also the parathyroid gland. So the parathyroid gland is going to decide what to do about. So if our blood calcium is too low, what are we going to try to do? It's a negative feedback me mechanism. So we're going to go in the opposite direction of the stimulus. We're going to try to raise the blood calcium. And so is the parathyroid gland an endocrine structure or a nervous structure? Endocrine. endocrine. So what type of message is it going to use to communicate with the effectors? A hormone. What hormone? Parathyroid hormone, PTH. And so we're going to use PTH. It's going to communicate with the effectors. And what did we say the effectors were? What is one of them? An osteoclast. So the parathyroid hormone goes to the osteoclast, and that causes the osteoclast to take our calcium out of the bones and release it into the blood, which is going to increase blood calcium again. And that should restore homeostasis. What else does PTH do? What does it do in the kidneys? It decreases the excretion of the calcium, so we're not losing as much in the urine. And then what else does it do? It convert, it helps our reaction. It speeds up our reaction. In the kidneys, it speeds up our reaction in the kidneys for another hormone. The conversion of calcidiol to calcitriol, right? And so remember, calcitriol is gonna work synergistically with PTH to affect those osteoclasts at both um, to affect the osteoclast in the bone, it also works at the kidneys to decrease the secretion of calcium. And what is calcitriol, which is that active form of vitamin D, what does it do in the small intestines? It increases absorption of calcium from the diet. All right, so in this case, we still have really high parathyroid hormone even if our blood calcium is high. That's not a normal homeostatic mechanism, right? So in Suzanne's case, hyperparathyroidism means that her parathyroid gland just keeps secreting parathyroid hormone. Even in the face of high blood calcium, it shouldn't normally do that. It should normally say, oh, the blood calcium's high, I'm gonna stop secreting parathyroid hormone. But in her case, she just keeps secreting it, and therefore her osteoclasts keep breaking down the bone and releasing more calcium in the blood, and that calcitonin is not gonna be strong enough, right? It doesn't have as, great an effect on blood calcium as parathyroid hormone.
Do you guys have questions about blood calcium homeostasis? We're going to move on from talking about calcium homeostasis and go to bone and cartilage growth. And bone and cartilage growth are going to both be really important. So as we said, our cartilage growth is something we'll talk about first. And we're going to move from cartilage growth into bone growth because many types of bone are actually formed from cartilage. So there are two types, and we're going to use hyaline cartilage as our example because hyaline cartilage is the most common in the skeletal system, and it is the form of cartilage that forms the template in the embryo for our bones. So cartilage can grow in two ways. It can grow um, with interstitial growth and in appositional growth. And this begins during embryonic development. So when you are, were you know, a fetus inside your mom, as you were developing, this is when your cartilage was growing. It can grow sort of in length through what we call interstitial growth. This occurs within the internal regions of the cartilage. And it has to happen when the cartilage is still kind of semi-solid. Because if the cartilage was harder, we wouldn't really be able to, it wouldn't be able to grow in length as well. So we have one chondrocyte, right, the mature cartilage cell. It is stimulated to undergo mitosis and cytokinesis, and it's going to form two new daughter cells. And these two new daughter cells are each going to then, like, re go revert back to their young state, the osteoblast or the chondroblasts. So if osteoblasts build bone, what do you think chondroblasts do? They build cartilage, right? They're going to secrete that cartilage matrix. And so these osteoblasts are each going to secrete the cartilage matrix, and they're going to secrete lots of matrix around themselves and sort of push apart until they're each in their own little lacunae. And once that happens, they'll become chondrocytes again. And this will be happening in all of these internal regions of the cartilage as you're growing, just making the cartilage get bigger in general. And this happens early in embryonic development, just as everything is, is sort of growing. The other type is appositional growth, and this occurs around the outsides of the cartilage. Cartilage, hyaline cartilage, actually has a perichondrum that's very similar to the periosteum we talked about in lab. So the perichondrum is going to have dense, irregular connective tissue around the outside of the cartilage, and it also has a cellular layer, just like our periosteum. And this cellular layer has these embryonic stem cells here, or mesenchymal cells. So do you remember the mesenchymal cells, the embryonic connective tissue? The mesenchymal cells are the, can, the mesenchymal connective tissue is the connective tissue that was first formed in the embryo, and eventually all different types of connective tissue will come from it. So these mesenchymal cells are going to be acting as little stem cells. They're going to divide, and then they're going to differentiate, or turn into and become chondroblasts. And what do chondroblasts do again? They build cartilage. So they're going to be secreting more and more cartilage in sort of rings around the outside of the cartilage. And you can see that these, the cartilage will grow around the outside, kind of like our bone will grow around the outside at the periosteum. So the two types of cartilage growth are going to be interstitial, which is what, happen, what happens early in embryonic development, and appositional. And this is going to be happening a little bit at the same time as interstitial, but also it continues later. For appositional, uh, for interstitial cartilage growth to happen, the cartilage still has to be really semi-solid. Once it hardens, it can't really grow from the inside anymore. It can only grow around the edges. So once the cartilage gets a little bit harder, because it's semi-solid, but it's still a little harder. 
So once we have our cartilage um, matrix formed, we can next start talking about bone formation or osteogenesis. And there are two different types of um, bone formation that can happen. It's, we either have bones forming from within that connective tissue membrane, from within that mesenchymal connective tissue, and this is called intramembranous ossification, or we have bones that form from with bones that form from within our hyaline cartilage model, and that's endochondral ossification. So endo is within and chondro is cartilage, so the bone forms from within the cartilage. This is going to start in the embryo at, by around the 8th through 12th weeks of development. And it continues through both childhood and adolescence. The first type is called intramembranous ossification. And this is ossification that forms from within that mesenchymal tissue. This is going to form the flat bones of the skull, some of the facial bones, the mandible, and then part of the clavicle. Another term is called dermal ossification. So think about like um, the dermis is ossifying almost. It's just ossification happening within a membrane. So there are four basic steps that we'll talk about in, in our book. First, all of this is our mesenchymal tissue. This is our embryonic connective tissue. It has not yet differentiated into all the different types of connective tissue in your body. Some of these mesenchymal cells are going to aggregate. They're going to form together, and then they will differentiate into osteoblasts. So they're going to come together and form an osteoblast. And what does the osteoblast secrete? Osteoid, right? The organic components of our bone matrix. And that has a lot of a certain type of fiber in it. So what type of fiber does that have in it? collagen fibers. So all of these are going to secrete osteoid. And then in the centered part, the inorganic part, which is the calcium and the phosphorus minerals, are going to start being laid down and calcification is going to start happening. And so these little um, osteoblasts in the middle, when they become fully surrounded by that calcified matrix, they're going to be mature and become osteocytes. Those are the mature cells within the bone matrix. Um, this is going to keep happening around the outside. All of these osteoblasts are going to keep secreting the osteoid, and then that osteoid is going to continue to calcify. This will first form a, the primary bone called woven bone. It's kind of disorganized and like early immature bone. And so this woven bone here, we've got, you can see it looks a little bit more like spongy bone at the beginning when it starts, because we have some areas of bone tissue, then we have some open areas, we've got some osteoblasts along the edges, and we also have some blood vessels moving in. Around the outside, we have some areas of mesenchyme that are thickening to form the periosteum. And so eventually, as this continues to get reorganized, we'll have the spongy bone in the middle, and then we have compact bone on the outside, and then the mesenchyme on the here is going to reorganize into dense irregular connective tissue to become the periosteum. And so then we'll have our normal sort of sandwich that we've seen with our flat bones, where we have periosteum and the compact bone on the outside as two layers. That's like the bread, and then we have the spongy bone on the inside as kind of like the inside of the sandwich. So intramembranous ossification is ossification from within a membrane. So what was the membrane? What type of tissue does it start as? 
mesenchymal connective tissue. And then the mesenchyme, those stem cells are just gonna turn into bone cells and we're just gonna start growing bone right in the middle. And so usually we've got a bunch of these little islands. So like here you'll have an island of ossification, You're, you might have another island or center of ossification over here, you might have another one over here, and eventually they're all gonna merge together to form this bone. So intramembranous ossification. Did we say anything about cartilage? No, right, so there's no cartilage. We don't need cartilage, a cartilage template to form these types of bones. The other type of bone growth is called endochondral ossification. So from within cartilage. It begins within that hyaline cartilage model. So we just talked about our hyaline cartilage and how our hyaline cartilage grows by both interstitial and appositional growth. And, event, and it, this happens in the embryo and it forms all of a template for all of your bones. Well, not all of them, but most of your long bones and all the bones that are not the ones like the flat bones of the skull, some facial bones, the mandible, and the central part of the clavicle. So most of your bones are formed by endochondral ossification. You just have a few of them that we just talked about that are formed by intramembranous ossification. So the book is going to use the humerus as a really good example of a long bone that's formed from endochondral ossification. First, the first thing that happens is that the fetal hyaline cartilage model develops. And we just talked about this. This is going to be happening during weeks 8 to 12 of development. And so that's about like, what, two to three months, right? During that third month, 8 through 12 weeks of development. And here's a picture right here. We see this is happening. We have our, our cartilage model. In this picture right here, you can see that a special stain has been used to show all of the little tiny hyaline cartilage model um, on this embryo here. The next step is that we're going to have um, a periosteal bone collar forming. So this means that, and let's look at the picture here, it helps. <laughs> around the outside of here, this is where the perichondrum was around our skeletal model. Then right around the perichondrum, we're gonna have a periosteal bone collar that's forming around the diaphysis. And so at this point, we're having some ingrowth of blood vessels that are coming in here. They're bringing osteoblasts in. The osteoblasts are going to start surrounding this cartilage model. The cartilage inside is actually then going to start calcifying. Normally cartilage does not contain calcium. It, is not, it does not normally calcify. When this cartilage calcified, it's going to actually cause the chondrocytes inside to die and they're going to start degenerating. This little vessel here then is going to bring, it's going to start invading into our cartilage because normally cartilage doesn't have vessels. This vessel is going to start invading through the nutrient foramen and it's going to bring those osteoblasts as well as it's going to bring growth factors and nutrients in. The osteoblasts are then going to start invading this calcified cartilage um, area and they're going to be replacing the calcified cartilage with bone. So we're going to, this is going to be called our primary ossification center and this primary ossification center forms within the diaphysis. And all of this is forming during fetal development and before birth. 
our secondary ossification centers are going to start forming in the epiphysis. So we can see that at this point too, we're going to have blood vessels that are starting to invade into the epiphysis of these long bones. And these blood vessels are going to bring in just the same things, those osteoblasts and those growth factors. And so around the time of birth, a little bit before and then up through you know, toddlerhood, we're going to have these secondary centers of ossification forming within the epiphysis of our long bones. So we have the primary center of ossification is going to be in the diaphysis, and the secondary centers are going to be in the epiphysis. The center part of the diaphysis is going to start opening. Osteoclasts are going to start reorganizing this and opening up a medullary cavity. So what is going to go into that medullary cavity? Bone marrow, right? And so in an infant, what color bone marrow will go there? red bone marrow in the infant because they're going to be using that to create lots of blood as they grow, create white blood cells and red blood cells, and eventually as they age it's going to be replaced by yellow bone marrow. So in a child, as they continue to grow, the primary ossification center is going to become the diaphysis and we're going to have a, a very nicely hollowed out medullary cavity. The secondary ossification centers are going to become the epiphysis of the bone and we're going to have um, spongy bone replaces pretty much all of the epiphysis except for the very top and bottom. So except for the articular cartilage. The articular cartilage is going to be left. And in chapter 9 we'll talk about um, the structures of joints. But that's going to be important to help us reduce friction between our, our bones. Now right here we have the diaphysis and we have the epiphysis. And right in between the area where the metaphysis would be is going to be the epiphyseal plate. So this epiphyseal plate is wide in childhood, and this is where our bone growth is going to occur, our bone growth in length. And we can see that this cartilage plate is going to stay open until the bones reach their mature adult length. Once the bones reach their mature adult length, then the remnant of the epiphyseal plate is going to be called that epiphyseal line, which is kind of in between the epiphysis and the metaphysis of the adult bone. So our bones are going to continue growing until, you know, late teens. Um, our, each bone and each epiphyseal plate is going to close at a different time. And so females generally close about two years or so earlier than males because we'll talk a little bit about the hormones that influence bone growth next time, but estrogen is going to cause them to close a little bit faster than testosterone. So we're, I want to look closer at the epiphyseal plate. And the epiphyseal plate is going to be very important because that is where our bone is going to be growing. And this is how our bone gets longer. Do you guys remember what we called the bone growth? Or when our cartilage growed? When our cartilage grew... <laughs> In length, what did we call it? Was it interstitial, interstitial or oppositional? Interstitial. interstitial was cartilage growth in length from within the middle of the cartilage. So this is going to be bone growth in length from within the epiphyseal plate. So we call this interstitial growth. So our epiphyseal plate was here. It's found right here in between the diaphysis and the epiphysis. And if we look at it under a microscope, you'll see that we have five different zones of bone growth. And so these zones are going to be, zone one is closest to the epiphysis, 
And then zone five is closest to the diaphysis. So zone one is the zone of resting cartilage. And it looks just like normal mature hyaline cartilage. And it's going to connect the epiphyseal plate to the epiphysis. Zone two is the zone of proliferating cartilage. And this zone of proliferating cartilage is when our cartilage is proliferating. So what does that mean? It's growing, but it's, it's dividing, right? So we're having our chondros. In zone two, we have our chondroblasts that are all dividing, and they actually line up in these parallel rows here. And it looks a little bit like rows of coins. And so they're dividing really quickly, so they don't really have time to grow in size. So they're still really small, and they've divided, but they're not getting any bigger yet. And that's in zone two. Zone three is a zone of um, hypertrophic cartilage. Do you guys remember what hypertrophy means? Increase in size. The growth of a tissue due to the increase in size of the tissue, of the cells within the tissue. Hyperplasia was the growth in tissue due to the increase in number, which is what's kind of happening in the zone two, the zone of proliferative cartilage. So this is going to be zone three. This is the zone of hypertrophic cartilage. So all of these chondrocytes are then getting bigger. And so they're growing. So both of these, these are growth zones. Our tissue is growing via hyperplasia. We're getting more numbers of cells. And this is very hypertrophy. Our cells that we have are getting bigger. And what type of tissue is here? Is it cartilage or bone? Cartilage. All, yeah, this is all cartilage. The next zone we have is calcified cartilage. Do you remember what happened to the calcified cartilage in our endochondral ossification? Did it do well after it calcified? No, it died, right? So the calcified cartilage, the chondrocytes are going to start dying. That's going to be this part over here. You can see that the lacunae start looking empty. You don't see as many chondrocytes here. This is a zone of calcified cartilage. So the cartilage is going to calcify, and the chondrocytes are going to die. And then in zone five, it's the zone of ossification. And this is where our bone, our osteoblasts are going to come in, and they're going to invade, and we're going to start laying down bone. So as a reminder, what two zones are going to be where the growth is occurring? Two and three, right? And is it cartilage or bone that's actually growing? The cartilage is sort of, that's, we're making more chondrocytes and we're um, making the chondrocytes bigger, and then we're going to be replacing them with bone. And during a child's um, childhood, the epiphyseal plate is normally going to stay about the same width because the rate of ossification is going to be equal to the rate of cartilage growth. As the child grows, the epiphyseal plate is going to narrow because the rate of ossification will eventually get faster than cartilage growth. And we'll go into that when we talk about the hormones involved in bone growth on Monday. If you have not signed the attendance, if you came in late, please sign the attendance before you go so I can count you as presents.